Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. If you would be open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, we'll continue looking verses 6, 7, and 8 tonight. We looked at 6 this morning. We'll look deeper into 7 and 8. We have had a tremendous, just a wonderful, wonderful weekend, and, and we appreciate each one that has taken part. Saturday morning early, we had a group gather for uh, the compiling and then distributing of over 100 fruit baskets to those in our congregations and friends of our congregation. We appreciate There's a large number of you that participated in that, and, and we appreciate you greatly. John Stallworth does a great job in his ministry that he leads, and he asks also that I pass on gratitude to each of you that helped with that. And then later on in the day, the Firm Foundation class went to Providence Place and they passed out 60 goodie bags and also uh, stuck around and did a Christmas caroling and it was a wonderful time. Uh, also later that evening, uh, hot chocolate was given out at the Christmas parade that passed right in front of our building. And we appreciate each one that took part in all three of those events through the day. And uh, we just have a lot to be thankful for. As we think about things that ought to bring joy to us, I want to just mention, we could go on and on mentioning things, but I want to mention to you three things that's happening right now that young women in our youth, our high school group here at Mount Juliet, Brooke Eeks has challenged our youth group to collect coats for the homeless. Rebecca Bachelor is collecting cans for food for families in need. And... Brenna Yop has started Share the Fluff, which is a stuffed animal campaign, and these stuffed animals are going to be sent uh, to the Philippines and to children in the Philippines. It is amazing, but yet no surprise. We tend to take on the culture of which we grow up in, and it is no surprise that we have a youth group that is full of individuals that believe that when they see a need, it is their place to step up and fulfill that need. And I hope that all of us see that because God gives us resources so that we can help others. I look out in the audience and I see Christy and Elise. It is good to have them visiting with us tonight. I keep hearing about their great work that they are doing in Memphis and we are thankful for you and we're glad that you are here this evening. Also, just before services, I noticed a meeting taking place about Vacation Bible School next year. I know our young soldier serving Christ had a tremendous meeting. And uh, I also just came from the hospital and I saw several of the members of our congregation uh, there at the hospital. And again, to each of that, glory be to God. God gives us so many opportunities to serve. And I just want to encourage you to find your place to serve. I want to encourage you to be prayerful about everything that's been mentioned in your bulletins and, and, uh, and, and throughout the day. But I want to remind you of two, and, and that is the Harville family. They're in a very difficult time today. And uh, difficult decisions have been made. And uh, let's be sure and pray for them and strengthen and encourage them in any way we can today and tomorrow and over the next few days. Also, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for Santino Har. Remember, we mentioned last week that his wife and all the children are going to have to travel to Juba, South Sudan. And uh, many of us probably can't really imagine uh, what this is like, but they got on a bus and they traveled for four days. Four days. The bus had problems, it was a long trip, bad roads, and they just arrived last night. And so they will try to begin 
on Monday morning, working through the process of getting the papers they need uh, so that they can continue this process of being reunited as a family. I want to encourage all of us to be fervent in prayer over the next 24, 48 hours that things would go well for them in getting their papers and, and, also, uh, and, and also their travel back. Let's continue thinking about some things we did this morning in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. What would you want your epitaph to read? I hope you've given that a little bit of thought. How would your life be described? And if you described it honestly at this moment, is that what you want it to be? Or would it be that you examine that and say, I need to make some changes in my life? I mentioned to you this morning the historic Key West Cemetery, Cemetery Gloria Russell. She had on hers, on her tombstone, I'm just resting my eyes. Emily Dickinson had on hers, called back and they believe that that was a line of the last letter that she wrote to her cousins before she passed away. And then perhaps one that really gives you something to think about is in Thermont, Maryland, there's one that simply reads, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. C.S. Lewis was told about this tombstone and he said, I bet he wishes that were so. Really something to think about. How wise or how foolish do you live your life? Do you really not believe that there's anything more important than this earth? Do you really not believe that there's not much, much more in which to live for? Now listen, you don't live your life in vanity and then at your death say, now I want to live for something eternal. We live our life for that which is eternal so that we are ready, as we read this morning, so that we can say in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, at any time, I am ready. That's how we live the Christian life. The Christian life is lived by people who are prepared. That's the whole idea of the Christian life. We're not a Christian if we're not living prepared for eternal life. Paul wanted to finish strong. And that was his whole emphasis that he was giving Timothy as he writes 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, the last inspired writing we have. Here we are thinking about soul focus and we're thinking about what good is it to think about that focus if we're not finishing this Christian life. I'd like to remind you again of 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6. Think about what we studied this morning. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So he says, I'm ready, I'm all ready. And the time, that's the season of his life. He knew it was near the end of my departure. That's the way he viewed death. My departure is at hand. I don't know how to illustrate it on this next slide is something you can think about. If you looked at your life at the end of a staircase and you looked up and you said, going through that staircase and out that door is my departure. Well, maybe if we envision it something like that, we'd say, you know, there's something on the top of those stairs. Brethren, picture death however you want, but you are a fool if you picture it as the end. Death is anything but the end. Death is the beginning of forever. We will either live forever condemned and separated from God, or we will live forever in eternal life with God. But death, the only thing that it ends is this minor thing of life on earth. All of the important things, they continue. Our soul, 
our relationship with God, our love for God, that spiritual life of which we strive, all of that continues and not only continues, it continues in its fullness, in the full glory. And so how could Paul be so certain? I'm ready to be poured out. Well, it was because of decisions he made in his past. Look with me, if you will, 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter and verse seven, as he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, some scholars say that the way this is worded in the Greek, that you could also switch the object and verb order there in, in the Greek language, and it would read more like this, the good fight. I have fought the race I have finished the faith I have kept it's not that that makes any difference in the meaning but maybe that helps us realize what Paul was saying Paul was saying in the past I made a choice about which side I was going to be on we're living in the midst of a spiritual warfare know it or not doesn't change the fact that it's happening and he says I decided whose side I was going to be on. Truthfully, if Paul elaborated, he could say, back when they used to call me Saul, I thought I was on the side of God and I thought that anyone that spoke about Jesus Christ was a blasphemer. And the truth was, I was the one that was blaspheming. You know, when that bright light shone and he responded by calling that voice, Lord, Paul was ready to switch sides. He was ready to join the fight with Jesus Christ. Listen, I need to know tonight that I have made my decision of whose side I'm on. And I need to know tonight that I am firmly committed to that battle. As we think about the good fight I'd like for you to turn back a page in your Bible to 2 Timothy, the second chapter. Look back at 2 Timothy 2. You remember Paul's writing to Timothy and he's urging him to be strong. And we can look at several verses in this one book of where he's urging him to be strong. But I'd like for you to notice especially these that talk about this warfare. Look in verse 3 and 4 here. And as we look at this, I want you to imagine Paul saying this to you and to me. And would we be able at the end of this to say, absolutely, Paul. That's the way I'm living. That's the life I'm living. Second Timothy two and three, you therefore must see it is not an option. It is a necessity. You must what? Endure hardships. Now, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, verse four, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier, I always hesitate to give any kind of illustrations like this because I know I'm walking into territory I know nothing about from a physical standpoint. Many of us here can say, we don't really know what it's like to be in a war. And yet others here painfully know exactly what it's like to be in a war. Did you notice what Paul called Timothy to do? You must endure hardships. 
I don't know anybody that would be thinking clearly, that would think of war and think, now that is an easy, comfortable life. That's what I want to do. I hope my next vacation that I am in the middle of a war somewhere. How comfortable would that be? I want my next career. I want to just be in the middle of a war for the rest of my career. You don't hear anyone ever say anything like that. You see, we get it, physically speaking. Physically speaking, we get it. You go into warfare, you're putting a lot on the line. You're living every day in very difficult and risky situations. And Paul says to Timothy, I want you to decide, are you going to do it or not? You must endure the hardships as a good soldier. You can't make excuses. Well, I, I didn't know it was going to be so hard. Paul said, of course you knew it was war that you're signing up for. You knew how difficult it was. But then notice verse four. He really has two things going on here. He says a good soldier is not going to be entangled with the things of the world. A good soldier realizes that there's many comforts of civilian life that they're going to give up. A good soldier recognizes there are many occasions in civilian life they're going to miss. A good soldier recognizes I have committed my life to this service in war. There are many things now that will be altered. And Paul says it's that way spiritually. Spiritually, you've got to be willing to sacrifice whatever is required to stay faithful in this spiritual battle. Why? Notice the last part of verse four. I want to please the one who has enlisted me. Jesus Christ has recruited us, has saved us, has enlisted us. Are we going to please him or are we going to be entangled in the world and hardships is not an excuse. Well, I'm sure the Lord understands how difficult this is. He understands that's why I'm not really faithful to him right now. Friends, he does understand how difficult it is, but he doesn't understand why you wouldn't be faithful to him because he came to this earth and he didn't come to this earth for a vacation. He came to this earth to fight a spiritual battle and he knew that that spiritual battle was going to cost him his life. He died on the cross to be victorious in this war that was being fought for my soul and for your soul. And so trying to explain to him, well, I, I just didn't really think that, that the Christian life, that, that that war was going to ask us to sacrifice things. Now, we could go on and on, but let's go back now to what Paul said. That good fight, I have fought. Think how powerful that is. Paul says, that fight, we all know about that war. Here I am towards the end of my life. Paul says, I can tell you this, I fought it. He didn't back down, he didn't back away, he didn't run away. He stood there as a faithful Christian soldier and he fought the fight. Let's go back again to that very same verse and let's notice the second line in 2 Timothy 4 and 7. I have finished the race. You know, there's many things that probably come to your mind about a race. And I know in this room, we have a lot of people that, that run 5Ks and, and marathons and half marathons. And, and so maybe uh, there's things that come in your mind about the endurance and the pushing through. And I think no doubt that's a part of what he's talking about here. The, the very idea of finishing the race. But I want you to think about the race. 
Now, yes, the emphasis of this whole series this month is on finishing. So I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle that, but I want you to just think about the race for a moment. If someone says there is a race, well, immediately what they're doing is they are referring to a course that's going to be run. If, if we're going to run a 5K, there is a course that's laid out that's 5K long. And all the runners are going to run this same course. If there's a marathon, there's 26.2 miles that's laid out and everyone's going to run this course. Do you recognize, brethren, that what he's saying is that Jesus Christ has come to this earth and he's made a way to the Father. It's a course. It's a course that everyone ought to be walking. They ought to be traveling. It is a course that we ought to be racing to say, I want to finish. The beautiful thing is it's not all about being the fastest. It's not really all about being the strongest. It's about being faithful. There are many things that you and I are going to do in our spiritual life where we will not be successful in the eyes of men or maybe in the eyes of ourselves. But what God wants to know is whether or not we'll be faithful. Will we stay on course? Will we not stop? Will we continue to put one spiritual foot in front of the other? Will we stay on the course? And when we breathe our last breath, let's die on the course. And when we do that, we have finished. Not quit, not just the end, finished. And what a beautiful, beautiful reward that'll be. Look over, if you will, 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. I'd like for you to see that in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. He says some beautiful things in 24 and 25 about a race. For time's sake, what I want to do is capitalize on verse 26 and 27. But let's get the setting of 1 Corinthians 9 and 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. In the next verse in 2 Timothy the fourth chapter, verse eight, we're gonna talk about that imperishable crown as we close this evening. But notice what he says in 26 and 27, and we're reading this to hear from Paul who late in his life said, I finished that race. Well, how do you finish that race? Here he is earlier in his life saying, this is how I run the race. Now notice what he says. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. See, there's a course laid out. And Paul says, I have learned that course. Remember what we studied last Sunday? It's the first five Verses of 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. It was Paul's plea to Timothy that he was giving him this charge in view of judgment and in view of God. He's giving him this charge, preach the gospel. Even when other people have itching ears and they don't want to hear it, preach the gospel. In other words, he's saying, this course has been laid out. I am not running with uncertainty. I know. I know the course I'm going to run for the rest of my life. I'm not saying that in arrogance. I'm not saying I've got it all figured out. I'm not saying, hey, look at me. I, 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 this is so easy. I'm just saying to you right now, I've made a commitment. And I know this room is full of people that have made a commitment. And someone says, what are you going to do with your rest of your life? Oh, I don't know every detail. I don't even know how long it's going to be. But I know this. My plan is for that course right there to be my life. If the Lord says go left, I wanna go left on that course. If he says go right, I wanna go right. If the Lord says go up, if the Lord says go down, wherever the Lord says go, I want that to be the course of my life. Paul says I didn't run with uncertainty. I didn't run around and say, I just don't know what to do in life. Paul said, I learned 
what I was to do with my life. And I hope all of us here tonight are learning what the will of the Lord is in our life. Thus I fight, verse 26, not as one who beats the air. Notice this second point in 27. How are you running, Paul? I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, I run with certainty. I know my course. Number two, he said, I discipline my body. If you've never heard this, you're probably going to think that's really strange. It is strange, but it shows the sacrifice that Paul was willing to make. In the Greek, that word for discipline my body literally is defined as I blacken my eyes. It is the idea that we would sacrifice our comfort and our safety in order to advance the cause. How disciplined are you in running this race? And Paul said, I would put everything in front. Everything, let me rephrase that. I would put everything behind the fact that first and foremost, what must be in the front is running this course. What if someone says that they're going to persecute you? I'll stay on course and I'll take whatever beatings I have to take. I'm disciplining my body. In other words, there was a great self-control, a great discipline that was brought in that said, this race, I know it with certainty and I am running it no matter what the cost. But did you notice that last part? And he says, I bring it into subjection. It's all about submission. It's not my will. It's not your will. It's God's will be done. That's how we identify the course. Whenever we start saying, this is what I want and this is what I'm going to do, we've stopped running that course. And we're running another course. It's our own course. It's the world's course. And every course has a destination. This course with the Lord has a destination of eternal life. Any other course does not have the same destination. And isn't it interesting that Paul's closing lines there in 1 Corinthians 9 is he says that lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He said, wouldn't it be something if I preached, I herald, I cried out to others what the guidelines were to running this race. And I told them the truth. And yet I myself left the race. I knew what to tell others, but I wouldn't do it myself. I become a castaway. There's no such thing as a doctrine of once saved, always saved. One of the greatest preachers, one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest apostles who've ever lived says it right here. He says, I can say it all right and I can still choose to live against what I say. Paul, you sound so confident at the end of your life. You're ready to be poured out as that drink offering. That time, that season has come. You, you seem to have it all together so well. How can you have such confidence? He says, I look back at the decisions I've made. 
I decided which side I was going to fight on and I was going to stay with that fight. I decided the course I was going to run and I'm not leaving that course. And then finally, he spoke of the faith. Look back again at 2 Timothy 4 and 7. 2 Timothy 4 and 7. Look at verse, the, the uh, third phrase where he says, I have kept the faith. The word kept is the idea of guard or to maintain. Like think about the idea of, of keeping a garden. You make sure that the pestilence and things that would destroy the garden are kept out. You make sure that the things that are needed to grow that garden are brought in, sunlight, water, fertilize, etc. And so here he says, I've kept what? Notice he didn't say I've kept my faith. He said, I've kept the faith. Remember in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we have seven ones. And one of the seven ones is Verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You see, there is the faith that you and I ought to put our faith in. Romans 10 and 17, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Now we're back again to the first five verses of 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. Stay with the word of God, preach the word of God. Don't let itching ears pull you away from preaching God's word. And now he says, let me tell you the confidence I have and why I have it. I have this confidence because I have stayed with the faith. This great Christian faith that gives us reason to live. This Christian faith that is distinctive. This Christian faith that lets us know about a God who loves us so much he would give his son to die, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. This great Christian faith that gives us direction from earth to heaven. Paul says, I've kept it. I've guarded it. I maintained it. I didn't cash in. I didn't sell out. And so finally... Let's skip a slide and let's read verse eight. Second Timothy four and verse eight. Notice what he says here. We've looked at the present this morning. We looked at the past just now and I wanna extend the invitation by sharing with you verse eight where Paul says, let me tell you about my future. Finally, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. The crown. The crown was what we think about like a gold medal. It was the honor that was bestowed to say, this person is victorious. It's a crown of what? A crown of righteousness. You and I enter into heaven. How in the world are we going to feel at home? I mean, by our own righteousness, we don't deserve it. We're going to go in this place of perfection without God's grace, without Christ's righteousness being bestowed upon us. We don't deserve it. We could easily, we could easily walk around and say, How, I don't deserve to be here. But you know what? We're going to have this crown, this crown that identifies us as worthy because of Christ's righteousness, because of God's grace, forgiving us of our sins. We will stand on what God has done for us, worthy to wear the crown of righteousness. I want you to notice as you just look at that verse, Paul felt very confident about that future. And I want to remind you of something. There's no other future you know. An audience this size. 
Do you realize that somebody in this audience is probably going to receive some news tomorrow that we were not expecting today? What's your tomorrow going to be? We all could say, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. Just name it off. Guess what? Somebody's tomorrow won't be there. You, you don't know your future. You may think you know some things about your future, but you don't know it. What's the future of the church? On this earth, what's it going to look like? How strong is she going to be? How much is she going to be persecuted? How much will she spread around the world? Listen, I don't know all the answers to that. I know the church's eternal future. I don't know the future on this earth. What about America? What's the future of this beautiful country of America? I don't know the future. How long will she stand? What will 10 years look like in America? This beautiful state we call Tennessee, what's her future? I don't know. I know when I was a little boy, I wasn't very few years removed from the fact that the community I grew up in, everybody had relatives that moved to Detroit because that was the happening place in America. That's where you could go to make a living when you're starving to death in Tennessee. You know, if you'd have told those people 40, 50 years ago, let me tell you the future of Detroit. <laughs> you are foolish. Look around. You're telling me houses are going to sell for $5,000 and there's going to be entire blocks that are vacant? You've got to be kidding yourself. Look around. Oh, yeah, people are moving from all over the world to Tennessee right now. But what about next generation? I doubt it'll be true. And what about the generation after that? I doubt it'll be the place to live. But I don't know that. But I do know this. There's nobody in this room that knows. You don't know the future. Except one thing. You can know your eternal future. Now that's the one thing you can be certain of. I don't know how my children are going to choose to live. I don't know how my wife's going to choose to live. I don't know how my best friends are going to choose to live. I don't even know if they'll be my friends 10 years from now. Friends, you realize we can go on and on and on talking about all the things we don't know. But brethren, every one of us should leave here tonight saying there is one thing I know. I know that there's an eternal life, that there's God who loves me, and I'm going to spend eternity with him. The crown is waiting. He's promised it to me and to all those who love his appearing. The idea in that is every day we're living for the second coming of Jesus. That goes back. Loving his appearing goes back two verses when he says, I am ready. I'm already ready to be that drink offering that's poured out. Paul, how can you say you're ready? Because I've lived every day of my life for the last 30 years waiting for Jesus' return. Because that's the only thing we know for certain. Brethren, I beg you, do not put your trust in earthly things. Do not put your trust in your health. Do not put your trust in your wealth. Do not put your trust in this nation. Put your trust in your future with God. And tonight, if we can help you in any way, have a future with God, we'd love to do it.